Hi, I'm Liz Corey. And I'm Katie King. And this is True, True Crime, Crime New, New England. England. Welcome back for another exciting episode of Stories That Will Make You Cry. Yeah, especially this one we have today. It's another good one. We're not holding back for you guys. No. We're trying to do our best to go through different states, so we're not following an exact pattern of like, okay, this week is New Hampshire, and then Mass, and then just every you know, repeat. We're doing just like, okay, we did mass recently, so let's not do that. Let's mm-hmm. go to Connecticut. It's been a while. Like, that kind of thing. Yeah, we have a good rotation going without a real pattern, so yeah. it, it allows some freedom for us, too. Yeah, it's so pretty it's cool. Been fun. Yeah. yeah, it's been, been pretty fun. Um, you know, between work and this podcast, I would say we're having a great time. Because... Oh, yeah, it's, it's a lot, but you know what? It's okay because this is a lot of fun. Yes, so. it is. Me and Katie both work full-time, as nurses, and mm-hmm. I know you're thinking, Liz, you've already said that. You made a very big point to let everyone know that you are a nurse now. You're right, and I'm not gonna stop because I love <laughs> it. It's the best. But anyway, although that was fun and cutesy, our topic today is quite fucked up. Uh, it's a good one, it's very interesting, and it actually has a tie to one of the cases we've already covered mm-hmm. in a very small way, but it's pretty interesting. Um, so we're going to be talking about a case that is so fucked up. We really need to give a warning of if you're really sensitive and don't want to hear about like topics such as rape and, um, child rape and just sexual assault in general, I really recommend skipping this episode. Yeah, and we also talk about um, pretty brutal crimes and brutal murders against children. So again, if these things are not for you, you don't want to sit through them. These were hard to research, so (laughs) they're going to be hard to hear about for some people. So no worries. Skip this episode if you feel like you need to. No problem. And without further ado, we will be covering the case of the The Cheshire Cheshire Home Home Invasion Invasion Murders. case we're doing today it's nasty and it's awful but it's important to raise awareness Mm -hmm. so let's get into it katie your sources please i found an article on reuters.com um oxygen did a whole thing on this so that was really fascinating um wikipedia of course just for some you know just for some insight take it with a grain of salt not my primary source but just for some information here and there right um and then the new haven registrar did an article on this okay and they also had some photos too which was really cool nice all right um i used wikipedia Mm -hmm. which was Amazing! They did a good job. They did on a this. really good job. Whoever wrote it killed it. Yeah, good work. Uh, yeah, I watched a YouTube version of a podcast from this guy who's calls his podcast "15 Minutes with," and it cool. was a four-part series. And it was basically this guy. His name is uh, his last name is Tommaso. He calls inmates and has them tell their side of the story. Yeah, it was so interesting. So in 15-minute increments, there's four parts. He talked to one of the perpetrators of this crime. It was very interesting. So you hear firsthand account. Wow. Yeah. And then um, I also watched a video on YouTube from someone named Croker Queen One Two Three, and she basically uploaded the audio of the other perpetrator's entire interrogation from the day that it happened. So Holy you get shit. his first can firsthand account literally immediately after he was caught. I was like, "Holy shit!" I sat wow. there listening. It was like an hour and a half, and I just was. 
blown away by how nonchalant he was and oh it's terrible this guy's a sociopath as we will get into yes they all are who isn't yeah (laughs) um let's start with um the family who was the victim of this crime they are an all-american normal family the pettit family they're a beautiful mm-hmm. family. The photo is on our Instagram mm-hmm. of them, as well as a couple other photos of um, some things that go along with this case. But they're a gorgeous family. Yeah, they really are. And the story of how the two met. So we have Jennifer Hawk Pettit, and she met her husband, Dr. William Pettit, while they were working at the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh in 1985. Jennifer was an, was an oncology nurse. Mm-hmm. A pediatric oncology nurse. Are you kidding me? Guts. And then he was a third year medical student, so they met and fell in love. That's so cute. cute. It's like everyone's dream. I know my dream personally is finding a doctor and marrying him, (laughs) but that maybe is for different reasons. Come down Grey's Anatomy. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Sorry, (laughs) but it's you know they. It is a cute story. It's really nice. Yeah. So Jennifer went on. She was a nurse and a co-director at the health center of Cheshire Academy. Um, and she recently, at the time of this crime, had been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, or MS, which is a debilitating disease, um, an unfortunate diagnosis, but she still was living her best ni- life doing nursing, which is great. Very cool. And then Dr. Pettit was an endocrinologist, which means he dealt with things like um, hormone disorders, di- like diabetes, um, thyroid problems, things like that. And he was actually a director of the Jocelyn Diabetes Center in Plainville, Connecticut. Yeah. Um, he was a good man. And together, these two wonderful people had two very beautiful, talented, smart daughters. These girls are phenomenal. Yes. So Haley, their oldest daughter, she was born on October 15th, 1989. So she was 17 at the time of this incident. Um, that occurred that we'll talk about. Mm-hmm. She was headed to Dartmouth to pursue medicine, like both of her parents. Right. She was brilliant. Smart. She won an award at her high school for exceptional community service because she ran a fundraiser to raise money for MS, mm-hmm. um, her mom's disease. Right. And she captained a team that would walk for fundraising to find a cure called Haley's Hope. Which was very cute. Like, yeah. what, what a good kid. Right. Right. She was so smart. And she was a big athlete, mm-hmm. varsity cross country, varsity basketball, and was a member of the crew team. She was so in between being a perfect student and an athlete, she was also, you know, doing community service and raising money for multiple sclerosis, which does not have a cure. So, no, and if you guys don't know what MS or multiple sclerosis is, it's where your immune system attacks the outer coverings of your nerves. And so this can be really painful. Mm-hmm. Um, it can cause difficulty with mobility and moving around and walking, and then eventually communication. Yeah. So it's really debilitating over time, and so you kind of watch your loved one with MS wither away in front of you, and it's yeah. it's really scary and traumatic. Yeah. So these girls are really in it for their mom, and, you know, they, they're they a good family dynamic. Right. And they're a really great family. Yeah. And then they had another daughter, Michaela, mm-hmm. who was born in November of 1995. She was 11 at the time of this crime, and she was attending the Chase Collegiate School when this happened, and she had a passion for cooking, and she loved to cook for her family. It's no secret that she probably would have gone on to be a great cook because she really loved it. She was such a good cook. Um, She would cook her family dinner all the time. And her goal when her older sister Haley went off to college was to take over Haley's Hope. Mm -hmm. And she wanted to rename it Michaela's Miracle. 
Like, just sisters being sisters. Are you kidding me? It's so sweet. They're really good girls. Yeah. They they were talented and smart and dedicated, and mm-hmm. it was clear that they were coming from very smart, kind family, mm-hmm. which is why this is so tragic. Now, that brings us to the events of July 22nd in 2007. Jennifer Hawk Pettit and her 11-year-old daughter, Michaela went to a local stop and shop for groceries. Mm-hmm. Um, that's in Connecticut. Uh, for those of you who don't know, stop and shop is not like a worldwide um, grocery store chain, but basically it's just a grocery store chain. I love it personally. Great. There used to be the one by us. Yeah. I was so sad when it closed. Me it's too. like, well, I thought it was a really good grocery store. My mom and I actively mourned. Like, we were so sad. Me and my dad actively mourned. Yeah. Oh, we were they so sad. They had the Starbucks sad. in it. Yeah. We'd go for hot chocolate yeah. all the time. Yep. Yeah. How could you forget? Rest in peace to the local Exeter, New Hampshire stop and shop. Stop and shop. We miss you. We miss <laughs> you every day. And fuck the Hannafords that's there now. Hannafords can go. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Anyway, I worked there for like three months in high school. I hated it. I quit because I hated being a cashier. (laughs) I don't don't blame you. Privilege, am I right, ladies? It's hard. It is hard. You deal with people. People are awful. It's so... Well, yes. It's monotonous. We have a whole podcast on why people are awful. Right. (laughs) But it's pretty terrible. Wow. Anyway. Anywho. I digress. (laughs) This isn't about how much we hate local grocery stores. No, this is not a podcast about local grocery store (laughs) slander. This is... This is True Crime New England. Where we were talking about this sweet little girl, Michaela, and her mother at the grocery store. Yes, and they went together to buy basically ingredients so Michaela could cook them dinner. She did this all the time. She Mm -hmm. loved to cook dinner, so they were just stopping by and shopping for groceries. As you do. No big deal. As one does. Normal. Apparently, while these two were doing normal mother-daughter things and going grocery shopping, they caught the eye of this monster, 27-year-old Joshua Komisarjewski, and it wasn't actually the pair that caught his eye, it was the 11-year-old girl, Michaela that mm-hmm. caught his eye, because Joshua is a pedophile and a sick fuck, mm-hmm. and he ended up seeing Michaela and following them home. That was the interest point for him, mm-hmm. and that's where he got in his head. I like her. I want to go follow her home. Mm-hmm. This is the house. Let, let's stick out the house now. Yeah. So, Komisar Jeski, that was his thing, was robbery, and he came from a really shitty background. Um, Katie, you have some great information on what he went through as a child. Yeah, so Joshua, um, he was adopted into a family And at a very young age, he experienced significant sexual trauma. The family he was adopted into actually adopted another boy, which Mm -hmm. that is so kind of them. Right. But the boy that they adopted, he was 15. Josh was only four. Mm -hmm. So the 15-year-old boy was extremely abusive physically, mentally, and sexually to Joshua. Um, And the issue with this family was that although they adopted these boys out of kindness and Mm -hmm. to help them, they really ended up screwing Joshua over because they were so extremely religious right. that between going to rigorous church services and when Joshua said, you know, this other boy in the house is really abusing me mm-hmm. and he did X, Y, and Z to me and, you know, it, this is really sad and ho- and horrible. Mm-hmm. They, instead of getting Joshua help, you know, therapy and counseling and, mm-hmm. and treatment, they sent him to a religious camp up in New Hampshire Great. and they sent him to more church services So ultimately, with the church services ideals, it made Joshua feel like 
it was his fault. Right. And that he was at fault and that he should be ashamed for letting that happen to him and that he should be ashamed for what had happened. It's so sad. So this really fucked with him as he was growing up and getting older. And, yeah. you know, ultimately it led to him really having a shit childhood. And, yeah. you know, that's part of his core development is being ashamed of these things that had happened to him, this significant abuse. Right. It was really awful. And he already, his biological parents already had a history of really significant mental illness. I mean, mm-hmm. bipolar, schizophrenia. Yeah. So he already has those markers and mm-hmm. now he has all of this abuse. Yeah. He was set up for failure. He, it's, it's really awful. It does not excuse the things that he did, but no, he did not have an easy life. No, he, I mean, his mother, his birth mother was 16 when she had him and that doesn't mean anything. You know, there are plenty of wonderful teen young mothers, but in his case, it did not, it was not a great, it was not a good situation. It was not a good situation. He was, and then he was adopted and it was a terrible situation. In the early 1990s, Komisar Jeski was accused of sexually assaulting his sister, and his father afterwards came forward and said that was probably true. Like, he wouldn't doubt it, which is fucked. Like, okay, if you even had an inkling, why didn't you do anything about it? Like, what the fuck? Right, get these children help or maybe separate them and remove them from the home. Yeah. Like, hello. There are Step things that can intervene. be done. Yes. Yeah, yeah exactly. intervene for these children. Exactly. And, um... It just didn't stop there for him. He committed his first bur- burglary at 14. Sorry for the butchering of that word. <laughs> um, but he did that at 14. And then in 2002, he was arrested for 18 different home invasions. Mm. 18. So this guy clearly had his thing. That was his thing. Breaking into homes. And what's really creepy, I mean, I got chills. I got Ugh. goosebumps reading this. Yeah. Um, Joshua, his thing, his kind of his MO was... He would break into the homes of wealthy families. And, you know, you hear that and you think, of course, you're going to target a wealthy family to rob them. Right. But his goal with these breaking and enterings were not to rob these houses. Mm -hmm. He would do so on purpose when they were home because, quote, he liked to listen to the sounds of their breathing as they slept. And he crept around the houses at night on purpose while the families were all in bed. No. So he could listen to them breathing. No, thank you. That's fucking creepy. You know how when you're asleep and you wake up and you think that someone's watching you? Yeah. And it's your cat? And hopefully it's your cat. Hopefully it's not like some sick fuck like Like Joshua Comis or Jeffsky. Jesus. I don't understand. Like, oh my God. That's a weird thing to be interested in. So we have him. We have him. We're dealing with him. A great guy. He... Uh, on the 18 home invasions, was convicted of 12 counts of burglary. You know what I mean. Um, and he was sentenced to nine years in jail with six years of special parole. What the what the fuck? Okay, fine. He was paroled in April of 2007 to a halfway house, mm-hmm. and this is where he met Stephen Hayes, our next friend, our other friend, mm. Stephen Hayes. Uh, he. Was a little bit older. He was born May 30th of 1963 in Florida. And at 16 years old, he was convicted as an adult for the first time. Yep. He was paroled in 1982, but violated it only seven weeks later. So this guy clearly had a bad streak. He uh-huh. was no stand-up guy, which is sad. And between the arrest in 1980 
and the home invasion in 2007, he was arrested 30 times. 30. 30. Yeah, no, I, I said it. I meant it. 30 times. That's a big number. Oh, God. In only 27 years? Like, come on now. That's, uh, that's a little extreme. He was a cocaine addict, and he had spent around $300, I'm sorry, $300,000 with his wife on cocaine. They were both cocaine addicts. Mm-hmm. Holy fuck. I mean, when you see these two guys together, I... <laughs> I almost felt bad. Yeah. Because you know the stereotypical Hollywood portrayal of yep. villain, like the villain robber burglar dynamic. Yes. Think of the Home Alone burglars. <laughs> you have the short one, the older one, right? Who's kind of bald. round and bald and a little tubby and yeah. kind of follows the lead of the the taller, skinny one who's younger and the yep. mastermind. And yep. This is exactly that. And if you don't, if you haven't watched Home Alone, um. You need to think of the two demons in, in the movie Hercules, the Disney movie Hercules, <laughs> right. Panic. And if you haven't seen that, I don't know what to tell you, Google is a thing. Yeah, but yeah. I, I was, like, dying laughing seeing these you two sent me that fucking and I was bozos. Like, yeah. These two clowns. Dumb idiots. Like, they look like the stereotypical house burglars. And then we go on to discuss what they actually did. And right. And you're like... It's not so funny. Yeah. Yeah, it's The awful. things that these people did are... It's so sick and twisted. Yeah. So, Stephen Hayes, um, you know, he got paroled in 2006 after being charged in 2004 with smashing a car window with a rock and stealing a purse from a woman. He was charged with, you know, whatever that charge is, breaking and entering and stealing property. And then he was paroled, like I said, in 2006 um, to a halfway house where he met Koma Zarjewski. Mm-hmm. Now, he eventually met Koma Zarjewski. He didn't meet him in 2006. But... Um, in 2003, he claimed to have attempted suicide because his daughter um, said, Daddy, you promised you wouldn't go to jail again. Doesn't that break your heart? And he did survive that suicide attempt, and he then became clean. It was wow. like his thing like for his daughter. I believe that was his only child, but he wanted mm-hmm. so badly for his daughter. Wow. Yeah. Um, actually, now that I'm thinking of it, uh, it's Komazarjevsky that had a daughter, just one. He had um, a daughter, and then I believe at least another son, like a son. Mm-hmm. So he had more than one child. Um, but his, you know, his daughter saying that to him really broke his heart. Mm-hmm. So he attempted to get clean. Now he he did, and things were going well, and he was fighting for recovery, and he really cared about it, and he wanted to do good, and so he did well for a good a good year or so, actually a little longer than that. Um, and he was in that halfway house with Koma Zarjewski where they bonded. They were actually roommates. And mm-hmm. Hayes said that he was really trying to push recovery onto Koma Zarjewski. Now, there was one point, point in his recovery where his brother, who used to be like him now, clean, living an okay life, now was a drug addict and falling on hard times and was bumming off of his mother. So this was really hard for Stephen to process. Mm -hmm. And it became to the point where Stephen's mother resented him. She did not like him. She didn't believe that he had just gotten a clean urine, like he passed his tests. And she just was so angry with him. She wouldn't give him money anymore. And it turned out that when Stephen was working when he was clean, he was sending her money and it was really hard for him. Wow. So he ended up relapsing on cocaine, got a pistol from a dealer, 
and this happened just a week before the home invasion. So this is 2007. He's just fallen back on hard times. He was doing okay, and now he's gonna be homeless, and he's on drugs again, and it's just not good. So what he does is he bought a ton of cocaine, paid for a sex worker, and then got high with her, essentially, in a motel. He knew that come Monday morning, his mom was gonna kick him out of the apartment, like. She had told him, you have until Monday night or whatever. So he was like, this is my last hoorah. So he had a pistol, cocaine, a sex worker, and was high. So he sent her out to go get dinner across the street at like a burger place. And while she was gone, he was going to kill himself. So he was preparing his pistol. He like wrote a note for her. And then as he put the pistol in his mouth, I swear to God, this is what he said. She walked back in to ask how he liked his burgers. Like, do you like it medium well or rare? And... It stopped him. Wow. It stopped him. Holy shit. Yeah. Which is crazy to think about, but it just blows my mind. So they ended up sitting and talking for like all night. All night they were talking and chatting. And he told her about his story. She told him about her story. You know, she was a sex worker. It was hard, you know, all that stuff. And it was crazy because... They just talked all night. In the morning, he got up and took a shower. And while he was in the shower, um, she took his pistol from him. Oh, yeah. wow. And so when he got out of the shower, he gave the sex worker, I never said her name, uh, his the rest of the cocaine, all of the money he had. And he said, you know, thank you. Like, you, you know, he paid her. He said, okay. And he took his duffel bag and he left to a reservoir. And it's when he got to the reservoir, he was about to take out the pistol to kill himself. He wanted to leave everything with the sex worker. He realized that she had taken the pistol. And so he went back to the motel. Now he was just angry because he wanted to kill himself. And the door was open to the motel room. And there was a note on the table. And it said, you have a lot to live for. I hope you forgive me for this. One day you will. That gave me chills. Wow. And this guy's a terrible fucking person. But, like, that situation right there. Wow. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. So she stole his pistol and essentially saved his life, which, not her fault, but, of course, you know, less than a few days later, he did the thing. Right. So, but isn't that crazy? Oh, my God. Her intentions were so good. Like, wow. what a wonderful woman. Yeah. Yeah. Holy yeah. shit. And that was the final weekend before uh, he was kicked out of his mom's house and then the home invasion. So that kind of brings us, you know, he and Komazarjewski were kind of chatting. Komazarjewski, my God, he loved burglarizing houses. That was like his one true passion. Mm -hmm. He was always talking about it. Yeah, and he actually, so him and Stephen Hayes kind of, when they were in the halfway house together, they kind of traded knowledge. So Stephen Hayes taught Joshua how to break into cars, and Joshua shared his knowledge with Stephen of breaking into homes. Great. Um, and so the night, we're now back to Sunday, July 22nd, um, the night that Joshua had seen 11-year-old Michaela and her mom, Jennifer, mm-hmm. um, Stephen Hayes and Joshua are exchanging text messages. Mm-hmm. Joshua receives a text message from Steven saying, I'm chomping at the bit to get started. Need a margarita soon. We still on? To which Joshua replied with, yes. Steven Hayes asked him, soon? Joshua then replied with, I'm putting the kid to bed. Hold your horses. 
Hayes replied with, dude, the horses want to get loose, LOL. Yeah. So what a fucking coincidence that yeah. Joshua had found this girl and her mother and followed mm-hmm. them home to target the house, mm-hmm. and then he receives this text message. Right. So a light bulb goes off in Joshua's mind. He goes, well, my partner in crime is ready mm-hmm. to burglarize. Right. Do I have a target for him? Right. And it's funny because in the video or in the podcast I listened to, Stephen Hayes claims that that text message was about getting drunk, which mm, I'm not so sure about that one. Yeah. Give me a fucking break. He's trying to, you know, paint himself prettier than it actually was. So Stephen Hayes had said later in his confession that the initial plan was to rob the Pettit family's home at night and leave with no one harmed. And as we will talk about, things did not go at all according to plan. We're at the grocery store with Michaela, her mother, and Joshua Komazarjewski, who, of course, has no part in their family, is just watching this 11-year-old girl thinking that he likes her. And he's, what, 27? Mm-hmm. Um, so this sparked an interest in him, which he then, you know, began to plan, like Katie said, with Stephen Hayes. And they had been planning a robbery, like their ideal, their their dream robbery, um, while they were at the halfway house. And so Stephen drove up and met Joshua at the Stop and Shop parking lot. And they then drove to rob some homes. The first house, Stephen stayed in the car. And Joshua went up to the house, but he didn't end up going inside. And Stephen ended up convincing him to not go through with it because there was a lot of people there. And so they just drove off. Nothing happened. The second house, they both went in through the back sliding door. Stephen says it was like a frat house full of like college boys. And Joshua like grabbed a knife. I guess he cut himself in this process, but I don't know if it was on purpose or just he grabbed a knife, cut himself. And mm-hmm. then Stephen talks him out of it and says, okay, they're... There's like 10 college boys here. They're probably stronger than us. Let's not do this. And so they left. The third house, they couldn't get in. And it was about 5 a.m. at this point. So they were like, fuck it. We're done. It failed. So um, Stephen then said to Josh, I don't have any money to buy gas to get home. You know? And so Joshua gave him 20 bucks because the reason he was at the stop and shop was because he was getting paid for like a construction thing he did and so steven got the 20 bucks he took 10 put gas in his tank kept the other 10 and went home now the next day he called josh up and he said let's do it you know in the text that you had said and so joshua replied with i have the perfect house essentially (sighs) right because he had physically followed Michaela and her mother home Mm -hmm. to their house, which was not too far away. Um, So then Stephen went out to a bar with the $10 he had. He bought two beers and he wanted, he said he wanted to get a few drinks in him to like hype himself up, you know, get him comfortable. Then he met Josh at that stop and shop parking lot again. That was around 1030 PM. Then they went to the house. They canvassed it, like watched it for a little while, went to a bar, had more drinks, and then they came back around 2 a.m. So this puts us um, into the early hours of July 23rd, 2007. So now this is between the hours of 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. The men enter the Pettit home. Mm -hmm. So to their surprise, so they had been canvassing the house, you know, making sure everybody's asleep and in their beds. And 
um, to their surprise, they found Dr. William Pettit asleep on the couch in the sunroom. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the family had just been out. Michaela had cooked dinner, Mm -hmm. and he had just fallen asleep on on the couch. He meant to go up to join his wife in bed, but, you know, that didn't end up happening. So this startled the two men. Right. So Joshua had actually entered the home through an unlocked door in the basement, and leaning up against the stairs in the basement, he found a baseball bat. Um... He used this baseball bat to strike Dr. Pettit in the front and the back of the head Mm -hmm. about four to five times in total. Um, The total amount in which Pettit was hit in the head is kind of difficult to tell because his injuries later are so extensive that you can't differentiate, you know, how many hits. But it was was really bad. I mean, he was gushing blood. Yeah. And according to Stephen Hayes, Joshua did this. Stephen was still outside. He said watching through the, like, back door. And he saw Stephen start bashing him. And that's when he went inside and was like, what the fuck are you doing? Because what Stephen thought was happening, supposedly, was that they were going to rob the home and then leave. Right. Nobody gets hurt. Nobody is even going to see us. Right. We go in, rob the home, get our money, and leave. Leave. And nobody has to be none the wiser. Right. That did not happen. Joshua immediately walks in the house and escalates it from zero to 100. Right. Which we will continue to see over the course of this case. Right. So then they used, Joshua used plastic zip ties and rope and bound his wrists and ankles. And it's speculated that he said to Dr. Pettit, who was still alive um, after all these blows to the head, that if he moved, he was going to put two bullets in him. Yep. So that's great. Imagine you're asleep and you're woken up to being bashed in the head. You're shocked. You're disoriented. You're in blinding pain. Oh, for sure. It's dark. You can't see. Blood is streaming into your eyes. So now you really can't see. Right. And then you hear someone threaten to put two bullets in you as you're being tied up. Yeah. Terrifying. Can you even imagine? Like, I I, I have no words. Like, it already goes from just unnecessary you're being a creep and you're targeting this family and you're targeting this girl and then you go into the house and beat the shit out of the dad with a baseball bat fucked up it's so unnecessary (laughs) it really is anyway so at this point josh and steven went through the house they found jennifer and michaela in the master bedroom they had fallen asleep like watching tv together and then Haley in her own room and they each woke them up like shook them awake and basically told them we're gonna tie you up we're gonna rob your house you'll be okay just stay like we're gonna tie you up leave you here and then we'll leave we just want money and they the kids apparently and jennifer were very calm Mm -hmm. and listened to them and said okay and like agreed and the two men you know bound them and tied them not to the beds but just tied and bound their hands and legs and then put pillowcases over their heads Mm-hmm. So because Michaela was in the master bedroom asleep with her mother, um, they actually picked her up and put her in her own bed and then bound her there. How, how sweet. Like, oh, God. So much privacy is, I think, why they did that. Um, so they they moved her. And then subsequently, they moved Bill down to the basement. That's where they tied him to the like a support pole mm-hmm. in the basement. So before he was just bound and tied like his hands and feet. So he wasn't tied to anything, but now he's tied to something. And keep in mind, he has these injuries to his head um, from the bat that Komsarjewski used to mm-hmm. smash his head. So he's, but he's still alive. Mm-hmm. And he's floating and fading in and out yep. of consciousness. He's kind of hearing bits and pieces of what they're saying upstairs. And 
um, he's trying to figure out, you know, what time this is and right. what's going on with his family. And right. he's just he's just so disoriented and kind of going in and out of consciousness at yeah. this time. Yeah. So Hayes and Komisarjewski ransack the house mm-hmm. and they're looking specifically for cash. It's reported that Jennifer was trying to tell them where valuables were and they were like, don't care, just want cash, which is, I mean, all right, I guess, straightforward to the point. She's yeah. offering them jewels and they're, I mean, they are both do- like a nurse and a doctor. They're not poor, you know, like they have good jobs. So they probably have real jewelry or like nice items. Right. They're not loaded either, but they're, right. they're well off. Yeah. But they're well off to the point where they're so modest, you know, their girls are going to nice schools, but right. you know, they have to work for what they want right. and they're not loaded. Right. They're comfortable. Mm-hmm. And, and the men had actually asked William... They're demanding him, you know, where is the safe? Where is the safe? And William's like, what are you talking about? We don't have mm-hmm. a safe here. Yeah. What do you mean? Yeah. We do not have a safe. Right. We're not multimillionaires. Yeah. So uh, eventually they found a check register with $40,000 on it. I don't really, I'll be honest, I don't really know what that means because we don't get taught helpful things in school anymore. My limited understanding of this yeah. is that it's... Um, the registrar is like proof of they have an account okay. with this amount in it. Right. Um, like go to the bank and you can like, this is the account with $40,000. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yes. Um, and they also, this was like discussing, they found a jar of coins. Like I feel like every oh. white, <laughs> like upper middle class family has like a coin jar, yeah. like a, yeah. this will be for Disney world. Right. Like take it to the coin star, the stop and shop. Admittedly, and... I had one of those up until recently and I turned it in. Well, that was my dad's obsession was like, if you have any spare change, clean out your wallets, put it in the coin jar. It's going to our vacation fund. Sure, dad. Yeah. Like, all right. So they found this jar of coins that they took. And they also raided Haley's wallet mm-hmm. on the 17-year-old. It still had graduation gifts. Aww. So they took about $120 in cash from her as yeah. well as some gift cards. These are like our graduation gifts. Yeah, that sucks. Like what? But they were so upset that these were the only things that they got. It's like a petty haul. I know. Like this is not what they were thinking that yeah. this would end up like. He was expecting more. Mm-hmm. So when they Joshua. found that... Um, when they found that um, the check registrar, the cash registrar for $40,000, they were like, cha-ching. And it's funny because Stephen says this in the interview. He and Joshua agreed that they only wanted to take about 15000 because any more would have been suspicious. <laughs> so that's great that they were so modest about that. Motherfuckers. Later that evening, uh, Hayes went out and got gas. And by that, I mean he got two cans of gasoline he didn't put gas in his car he got it in cans mm-hmm. and um this uh i th- we think is where something happened in regards to michaela with joshua Komazarjevsky. um according to his account it sounds like he went into michaela's room he was in charge of michaela and um bill i believe and then steven was in charge of Jennifer and Haley. Um, and so Komazarjewski went into Michaela's room and he was talking to her. He said they talked about like music and she was really calm and he was trying to do his best to be very friendly to her. And he claims that he thought she was like 14 to 16, which does not excuse anything, but no. he thought that would save his ass. Oh God. No, it's not. He ended up 
Um, according to him, he ended up performing oral sex on Michaela, who was, again, 11 years old. And then he um, masturbated and ejaculated all over her stomach. Um, according to Joshua, she didn't do anything to him. Like, he didn't make her do anything to him, but he, of course, did that, which is rape. That's sexual assault. That's not okay. Mm -hmm. He then let Michaela take a shower because she asked if she could. So when she took a shower, she had different clothes on. Stephen Hayes comes back and notices that she's wearing different clothes. And he's like, this is weird. Like, why is she in different clothes? Why is her hair wet? And Komisar Jeski just said she wanted to take a shower. Okay. He was like, okay, mm, that's bizarre, but sure. The other worst, terrible, awful part is that Komisar Jeski took pictures on his cell phone of mm -hmm. Michaela and also of Haley's private parts. I don't believe it was ever said that he sexually assaulted Haley, but um, he did Michaela. Mm -hmm. And the pictures are very disturbing, um, especially of the 11-year-old girl, Michaela. Mm -hmm. He's in some of the photos. He took videos as well of him performing the acts on Michaela. It's just, it's very disturbing. Very. It's, it's, it's horrible. Mm -hmm. It's awful. Now, this is when Hayes took Jennifer and they went to the bank mm -hmm. to open up this check registrar, which was bold, quite bold mm -hmm. of them. So he went, he sent Jennifer in all by herself and she went in. It wasn't a bank that they usually used. It was a different one mm -hmm. to avoid suspicion. And so he sent her on into the bank. This was crazy. So the plan with this was that Stephen would take Jennifer to the bank in her car. Mm -hmm. He would drive her in her SUV and Joshua would stay at home. And if Jennifer were to try anything funny, mm -hmm. if Jennifer were to, you know, alert somebody that this was going on or raise suspicion, Joshua was just one phone call or text away. And so Stephen had threatened Jennifer. If you do anything funny with this, you know, you pull any funny business on mm -hmm. this, I will text my buddy and mm -hmm. he will kill your whole family. Yeah. So now Jennifer has to walk into this bank, mm -hmm. put on a calm face, pretend like everything's okay, and try to withdraw this $15,000 mm -hmm. from a bank and a bank teller who do not know who she is. Right. And she does. She does withdraw that money. Mm -hmm. But while she's there, she does tell the bank teller... I'm being held at, you know, at, against my will. My family is at my house being held against their will. They're tied up. Um, they're trying, they're, they, she even said they've been very nice. Mm -hmm. They want our money, but they're holding us up in my home. And so once they leave, you know, Jennifer leaves and she acts, she basically says to them like, don't act suspicious. Like once I leave, call the police. She basically told them what was happening and then just walked away. You know, like she, that she had no choice. Yeah. Jennifer internally was panicking because um, the issue with withdrawing this amount of money, um, the bank teller kept asking her, you know, I need to see your ID. Right. And this is a joint account. Mm -hmm. So your husband really needs to be here to withdraw this money from your account. So I can't give you this money. Yeah. And Jennifer is thinking, they're going to think that I'm taking too long in this bank. Right. And then I'm telling them what's going on. Right. And he could call the other guy at the house and have him kill my family. Right. So Jennifer calmly, very, very calm explains to them the situation. Mm -hmm. The bank teller alerts the manager, has the manager go off in the back, and the bank teller said that she was wondering if Jennifer was lying or trying yeah. to scheme her, you know, right. trying to scheme out of the money. Right. But she said that the look on Jennifer's face and the fear in her eyes, even mm -hmm. though she was so calm, the bank teller was like, 
no, this woman is serious. Yeah. Something is very wrong. And you can see there's footage, surveillance mm-hmm. footage of her talking to the bank teller. And she looked just like any other woman. Yeah. Chatting with, the, you know, taking out money. She was it's so amazing. Calm. It's amazing. And then the bank manager in real time was able to let the police know, okay, she's leaving right now. She's getting mm-hmm. in the car with one of the men. She's leaving right now. Yeah. So the police were able to be notified in real time that Jennifer was leaving the bank and headed home. Right. Yeah. And so they eventually return home. And that's when Hayes, you know, he he was kind of suspicious of Komisar Jeski because, you know, what he had seen earlier with Michaela being in different clothes. And, like, he was, you know, okay, what's going on? Um, so he returned with Jennifer and... Then this is where it got pretty nasty. Mm-hmm. Hayes then, he claims that he was coerced by Komisar Jeski to rape Jennifer. And then what he says in this interview I watched was that he um, was strangling her and he said, it wasn't sex, I just all of a sudden was very angry and I, and he had, you know, he fucked her, essentially is what he said. Um, which, those were his words. And then... He said he, you know, was strangling her, and then after he was done having sex, you know, after he was done raping her, he um, said that she was still alive. And so he, but he left the room, he, like, got a drink or whatever, and was, like, freaking out. And then he came back, and there was a rope around her neck. And he realized that Komisar Jeski had finished the job. He had finished killing her for him, essentially. This is this is horrific. Um, and so basically while all of this is going on, and then the events we'll talk about in a second, mm-hmm. um, the police had replied or responded to the, the 911 call made by the bank manager. So what they had done is they had sent unmarked police cars mm-hmm. to establish a perimeter around the home. Mm-hmm. And they used marked cars to block off the neighborhood. So once they saw that Jennifer's SUV was back in the driveway that she had returned home... Right. They're like, okay, so the man that took her to the bank, as well as Jennifer, are in the house. Right. But the thing was, is that they weren't sure if it was just the two men that Jennifer had talked about, or if there could be more that Jennifer hadn't seen. Right. So they're trying to establish a perimeter. Mm -hmm. Um, It's it's kind of infuriating, because the events that go on inside of this home, while the police are standing outside, quite literally outside. Right. I understand not wanting to rush in. You don't know what you're going to rush into. That's not what they're trained to do. Right. But the events that we talk about while law enforcement and help, essentially, is, like, right outside. Right there. It's it's horrible to even think about. It's so sad. And, you know, Dr. Pettit could hear his wife being assaulted from mm-hmm. upstairs. From, he was downstairs. He could hear. Um, and he yelled up, like, trying to, you know, stop them. And one of the men responded, he doesn't know which one. Don't worry, this is all going to be over in a couple of minutes. And so, right? I know. Like, when you hear that, you think, they're going to kill my whole family, everybody's going to die. Exactly. That's what that means. Exactly. And so, that's what Dr. Pettit said. He said, "Um, I thought it's now or never because in my mind and at that moment, I thought they were going to shoot all of us. And this is when Dr. Pettit escapes. He gets out of his ties, and he gets out of the basement door, and he crawls. His feet are still tied. He crawls to his neighbor's house. And he's unrecognizable because of the blows to his head. This is like, when I heard this account, so he got to his next-door neighbor's house, and, you know, they had been next-door neighbors for years, and they had known each other for almost 20 years, I think. Right. So Pettit is 
banging and slamming on this guy's garage door and finally the garage door opens and mm-hmm. he sees his very good friend and you know his next door neighbor come out and he goes hello who are you can i help you do you yeah. need something yeah he was so unrecognizable yeah and then another infuriating part was that um, this commotion that William is banging on the door and you know yelling at the neighbor for help, it attracted the attention of some of the police mm. outside at the perimeter. So they run over and draw their guns and point their guns at William oh, no. with obvious head wounds and bleeding on the floor. And right, they one of the officers, one of the responding officers, is pointing his gun at William, and he's screaming at him who is inside the house, who is inside the house. Mm -hmm. And over and over, William is trying to reply to him, the girls, Mm -hmm. the girls are inside the house. The girls, you need to help them, the girls. So they're like, oh, maybe this isn't one of the guys, huh? Crazy. Jesus. Crazy. And so this was when when Joshua Komisarjewski had realized that William had escaped. That was when he had killed Jennifer. Right. That was him realizing that okay this is it yeah we, we're had, fucked yeah they yeah. had to get out of there mm-hmm. and so now it's when they took the cans of gasoline now according to Stephen Hayes it was just Joshua who did this but that's you know speculation whoever they took the cans of gasoline and went up and down the house down the hall over Jennifer's body where she lay dead in the living room up the stairs to the bedrooms and Stephen claims that he closed the door uh i think joshua claims himself that he closed the doors of each of the girls because they thought it would buy them time um but then the i believe it was joshua komazarjewski who said this in his interrogation and the police were like why didn't you you close the doors okay but you they were still tied up Mm -hmm. and he was like i thought it would buy them time yeah right give me a break yeah so he did that he they poured gas and then it took three tries but in the living room they it's supposedly Komazarjewski. He struck a match and the house, you know, lit a flame and they they ran out of there. Yep, so they got in the family's SUV mm-hmm. and with Komazarjewski driving and he backed up and when they saw the police were, you know, around, they saw that they were leaving. One police car went into the driveway to try and stop them, but that just led to Komisarjevsky whacking their car, and it, like, spun out, and so they, they were able to get away. But, luckily, top-notch police work, they had set up a perimeter down the street, and so... Yeah, they blocked off the neighborhood. Yeah, so they were driving, and they didn't have time to stop. Komisarjevsky just rammed right into the police cars, and then they were subsequently caught. This is all happening while the house is on fire. The house is actively burning. Yep. Um, and there actually were accounts of some of the police officers on the perimeter. They said this off record, oh. but they said that some of them could hear the girls screaming. Oh, I believe Because it. the two girls, Haley and Michaela, were still alive. They were tied to their beds. Yep. And they said they could hear them screaming. Yep. They were tied to their bedposts at that point. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even that they were tied to their hands and feet. They were actually tied to the bed. Yep. And unfortunately... Um, both Haley and Michaela died from the fire. Um, it says smoke inhalation specifically, but I believe, I'm sure there was, you know, more to that. Um, Haley was found in the hallway. She had managed to escape, which is so, so, so sad. And she ran into the hallway and then collapsed and died. It's said that 
she had third and fourth degree burns on her feet. So it kind of indicates that she was really close to the fire when she died. Mm -hmm. And then Michaela was found in her bedroom still tied to the bed. Mm -hmm. And her hands were tied. Her lower body was like hanging off of the bed. <sighs> so it seems as though maybe she got loose in the bottom two ties. Or she was struggling and fighting to get out. Right. And then they didn't know if the burns were done while she was alive still or if she had died before. And then, of course, Dr. Pettit, by the grace of God, survived. He lived through this. It's, it's so crazy. So by the time that these men had broken to the home and then sped off and tried to leave, it lasted a full seven hours. Can you imagine? So a night and morning from hell. Yeah. This poor... Family. Um, so both of these pieces of shit confessed to the murders. Yep. Um, and it was reported that during their initial interrogations, they both reeked of gasoline. Yeah. They both, the whole interrogation room stunk of gasoline. Blech. I believe it. And then Joshua Komasarjewski, um, he seems to be the ringleader out of the two. Yep. Um, he wrote in one of his journals later on that said... Dr. Pettit was, quote, a coward and that he could have saved the rest of his family if he wanted to. And Dr. Pettit, when he was in the hospital recovering from his injuries, mm -hmm. Jennifer's parents had gone to visit him. Yeah. And he is sobbing and he's saying, I'm so sorry. I'm so yeah. sorry. I couldn't have saved your daughter and your grandkids. I'm so sorry. Yeah. And they're standing there. They're like, what are you talking about? Look at you. You're in no condition. To you had to crawl across yeah. the lawn. How could you... He lost, in total, Dr. Pettit, seven pints of blood. Holy shit. For, um, for knowledge, for medical knowledge, um, the average human body has about ten yeah. pints of human blood. Jesus Christ. So, with that blood loss and his injuries, I mean, he could barely see. He was... He's floating in and out of consciousness. He did the right thing to try Absolutely. to go and get help and alert yeah. somebody rather than go up and fight these two men. Are yeah. you kidding me? Yeah. So he felt so guilty. And for Joshua Komasarjewski to write that... Fucking... Are you fucking kidding me? Disgusting. Um, how about you're the coward for doing what you did to that 11-year-old girl? Yeah. You would think, right? Like, disgusting. Now, of course, these men were immediately arrested. Mm -hmm. And Stephen Hayes was the first one to go to trial in September of 2010. He claimed, in his defense, claimed that it was Komasarjevsky was the mastermind um, and that he was the responsible person of the escalation of every point of violence. Now, the trial ended on October 5th and the jury deliberated for five hours and they found him guilty of murder. And on October 18th of that year, um, his sentencing phase began and um, at first the jury couldn't decide whether... Um, death sentence or full life sentence. Eventually, in November 8th, they decided death sentence. So he was going to serve and die for what he did. And his death date, that sounds silly, his official execution date was set for May 27th of 2011, which was just a few months away. Mm -hmm. But the judge did say that this is just, um, like, you know, a formality, that they have to set a date, but it's very likely if he appealed, his execution wouldn't happen for decades which is often what happens in death you know death row inmate cases mm -hmm. that's yeah. why they live so long and then you have Komisajewski's trial his trial took place almost a year after Hayes's exactly wow. yeah so he um 
of course, as you would guess, his argument, his defense's argument was that Hayes was the mastermind of all the the bad stuff and that, you know, it was all, you know, all Hayes' fault and that Komisarjewski was a confused and easily met, led man. Okay, so he's dumb is what you're saying. Um, they found him guilty, no problem. Um, I believe, I don't know how long it took for the jury to deliberate, but probably not that long. And then on January of 27th of 2012, he was sentenced to death by lethal injection. Mm-hmm. And his official date for execution was set for July 20th of 2012. Now, let's throw it back a little bit. If you guys are loyal and listen to all of our episodes, you may remember a little man we may know as Daniel Webb. Also a piece of shit from Connecticut. Um, We covered him in our second episode. So he actually was on death row with these two clowns. It's really interesting because the same kind of um, circumstances that allowed Daniel Webb to evade the death penalty worked for these guys because they served at the same time. Right. So um, Connecticut had passed a law that in April of 2012, all capital punishment for future cases would be repealed for the future cases. Sure. Um... But prior cases would be left in place. So if you committed a case after 2012, after this right. was decided in April of 2012, mm-hmm. um, no more death penalty for you. Right, just life sentence. Mm-hmm. But they would carry out the death penalty sentences they had already right. determined. Um, so this was repealed in August of 2015 when the Connecticut Supreme Court ruled that capital punishment was unconstitutional. So Hayes and Komisar Jeffsky's death sentences were commuted to life imprisonment. Um, and they both got six consecutive life sentences. And then shortly after this, actually, Joshua attempted suicide, but he was unsuccessful. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. When So the two of them were kind of hoping for the death penalty. Right. Um, honestly, they both took it as a cop-out, like, oh, this is my easy way out. Right. Hayes welcomed it especially. Um, mm-hmm. And he stated, and I quote, Death for me will be a welcome relief, and I hope it will bring some peace and comfort to those I've hurt so much. Yeah. So Hayes, I feel like, was remorseful. A little bit. Komisarjewski, I don't believe at all. I don't either. I think, in my humble opinion, I believe it was Komisarjewski that was the mastermind. I agree. I don't believe that Stephen Hayes is completely innocent. No. He is... Piece of garbage. Obviously very guilty in this. Yes. But Komisarjewski, I think, is the real yeah. monster. He went in, he escalated it, it time and time and time right. again. Stephen Hayes, you know, did play a huge role in this, yeah. of course. I don't feel like Komis Arjeski would have executed this by himself. No. But, you know, it, it really was him that was the mastermind. Right. Um, I have some positive notes to end on. Let's some nice do things. it. Yeah. Um, in 2007, John Carpenter, a faculty member at the school Michaela was attending, mm-hmm. ran the New York City Marathon and raised oh. $8,554 for the newly founded Miles for Michaela campaign. Oh. Um, Dr. Pettit, that same year, this is so sad. This is, like, nice. He started the Haley's Hope and Michaela's Miracle MS Memorial Fund. Mm. <sighs> gives you chills. I'm, like, in tears. William appeared on an episode of the Oprah Winfrey Show in December of 2010, and he talked about how the murders of his family um, affected him, and he started the Pettit Family Foundation. Um, he actually ended up, this is so nice, um, August 5th, 2012, he ended up marrying 
a woman named Christine Palaf, who he met while she was volunteering with the foundation. Oh, no. They had a baby boy named William Pettit III, who was born on November 23rd, 2013, and Dr. William Pettit currently serves as the Connecticut House of Representatives. Yeah. So the Pettit Family Foundation, where all of the funds that William's been raising go to, um, this is a quote I got from their website. So the foundation works to foster the education of young people, especially women in the sciences, to improve the lives of those affected by chronic illnesses, and to support the efforts to help and protect those affected by violence. Such a great mission. So he really, he's been through this horrible tragedy, but he really, you know, there are some positives at the end. Yeah. Oh, man. That's a tough one, guys. Really tough one. (laughs) I don't know what else to say other than... Wow. Wow. Um... You know, we'll kind of leave it at that because it is really tough. Yeah. It's a tough one. Really um, brutal case. Yeah. If you guys want to let us know who you think is the mastermind behind this terrible, terrible crime, you can talk to us at True Crime NE on Twitter and Instagram. All lowercase. You can email us at truecrimene at gmail.com. You can listen to us wherever you like to listen. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Casts. You can listen to us on anchor.fm. And... We thank you for listening. Yeah, thank you guys. Bye. Bye.